You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. is the Lana Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are here for another winter edition of the Lana Legacy Podcast. We're going to cover a very, not heated, but a very debated topic. Highly debated. And I love these podcasts, man. I love them because afterwards, once they're out there, the feedback that we get is is really encouraging and eye-opening. You know, we hear people kind of just just come back and say that's finally it you know that everyone's everyone's talking about you know these different techniques or these different ways about going about these heated debated topics but what you said made a lot of sense so we're hoping that this week we'll have the same um, response from everyone and this to me this this topic is almost as debated as fixed blades or mechanicals or Chevy or Ford because I saw a post yesterday on one of the Habitat forums where some guy had posted it, and some guys were like, that's beautiful, perfect. And other guys were like, to the death, that is wrong. <laughs> and it's like, uh, oh, gosh, it's 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 almost just – sometimes I, I look at it and I'm like, I, I, I was not aware you could have a doctorate or a master's on this topic. Right, right. But – some some folks may claim that they do. <laughs> um, I studied, and our our topic for this week is hinge cutting. Hinge cutting architecture. I'm an yeah. architect for yeah. hinge cutting. I'm, I devoted four years of hinge cutting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because again, you see it on social media it's just so much. It's everywhere. And then you know when we travel to properties, you know if a if a landowner's been there for a while, he may have done some hinge cuttings and and. Um, gotten out there on his property with the chainsaw and done some work and, and it's great opportunities to learn teach um, share examples of good and bad um, but no doubt I feel like this is, everyone has got that opinion on hinge cutting so to hopefully. me it's like and way back one of the beginning podcasts we talked about some of the guarantees of, of consulting that you're going to run across when you hit the property is somewhere we're going to have a persimmon tree pointed out to us oh yeah um, that's almost a given. The landowner, whoever it is, or whatever it is, he's going to see. Yeah, there's persimmon over there, um, and there's always going to be the t- the topic of hinge cutting. It Seems like up. that always comes up, um, and then it, it's almost as common as what kind of bow do we shoot and and uh, what kind of trail cameras do we run. Mm-hmm. Th- it's like those four things are 
are almost always a must that that are going to get covered. And a lot of times fescue is one of those too because there's a fescue everywhere. But um, So that's this week's topic is hinge cutting, and we are going to go over everything about it, um, techniques we use, because we are very big users of hinge cutting. As, in the right situation. As everyone knows, we, we love to run chainsaw and cut trees and, and uh, make cover and food, but um, it's all in the right dynamic, and it's not as, as cut and dry, I think, as, as sometimes some people make it. Or, or, on the flip side, it's not nearly as complicated as it can be, or, or some folks may say. So It almost seems like, in, in kind of where we're at, 2018, that in the world of and I'll air quote it, deer management. If it's open and flat, it's a food plot, and if it's timber, it's hinge cutting. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it. Um, It seems like those are the two types of management. Well, if you have open ground, you got to plant it in food, and if you have timber, you got to do some hinge cutting. And it's so far from the truth. So we decided to vote this podcast to all of this uh, hinge cutting. But... As Matt mentioned earlier, there's oftentimes a lot of discussion that we get on the back side after we release through questions on social media and email, and we love them. Honestly, that's one of the biggest motivating things about this podcast is all the feedback we get and all the encouragement um, that we hear from listeners from across the country uh, and even other countries, Canada. Um, and so we actually had a question come in this week that we thought we would address. Yeah, this is a it's a new question for us. Um, but it's one I think that a lot of people can find themselves uh, and, and relate to as they're going through this process that um, Gray Turner of South Central PA is in. And he sent in the question, and him and his wife have been looking for a piece of property, and they are trying to work with an agent um, and trying to find the agent that is knowledgeable of timber tracks, ag land in their area. And so far, after even a couple years of looking, they've had a tough time of finding someone, a, a credible agent, knowledgeable agent to work with that they know that, you know, when they go to a property, that person can, can read the details, can read a map and identify the, the resources on the property and speak educatedly on them. So he asked, what are some good ways to find that skilled agent? How can I go about identifying them and, and working with them. Um, so we're going to address that question and share some insights. So if you are finding yourself in those shoes or you're beginning to look at property to buy, you can hopefully um, maybe not have as tough as a time as, as uh, Gray has had, but um, kind of just find that right agent and work with them and get to that piece of property quicker. So Adam, we briefly talked about it, but what is your number one thing? What's something you would suggest to anyone listening? First and, first and foremost for me is trying to find a, an agent in the that knows the area, but not just is in the area that's probably working for a brokerage that's devoted to these land and recreational lands, hunting land. Um, for us, our area of Mossy Oak Properties uh, brokerage uh, would be a great start. I'm not sure if there's one in that area. Uh, I don't but think there's, there's several other Pennsylvania. Uh, real estate agencies that are devoted to that and trying to find one in the area that knows kind of what you're looking for. Um, there's a huge difference, and this try not to be a burn on anybody, there's a huge difference between somebody who sells houses and somebody who sells land and the knowledge that they would have. I wouldn't know the first thing about selling a house. Oh, yeah, no. 
No, I'm, I'm and not, I don't want to try and fool you about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's red, it's brick, and I don't think was, there's any leaks. It was leaks. built during this date. Yeah, <laughs> this I, is what I the can read you. <laughs> I can read. I can read you what is disclosed on the list or on the listing. But other than that, then when it comes to land, it's the exact opposite. I'm going to tell you everything that that I would want you to do to improve it and get the maximum potential out of it. Um, and there's people like that across the country, uh, agencies that are going to work with you. But uh, if you're in Missouri, one of the best things you do, I guess, would be call us. Because <laughs> <laughs> no. we are agents here in Missouri, uh, we'd be glad to help you. Um, and even outside of the state, um, depending on what you're looking for. I mean, if you're if if you're like us, if I, if I was a buy piece, I'd want the best plan possible going forth. So there is potential that we could help you. Um, out of even out of Missouri as a consultant or a referring as a real estate agent. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is is most important too is is maybe not even overlook the the real small um, brokerages that are out there. They may just have one office open, but they're a, a s- small local shop um, that's very ingrained in the area that knows it well. May have been there for a long time. Um, go and talk to those folks and really before you start um, you know disclosing what it is you're looking for whether it may be 30 acres of, of wooded ground or, or 100 acres of ag ground you know before you get to those discussions um, start asking them about what what type of land do they sell what type of um, you know property that they specialize in What's your experience in dealing with this? Do you know any credible farmers in the area? Do you know any credible loggers in the area? Get a background and, and kind of test them a little bit before you before you dive in and begin to drive all the way across the country looking at, at different properties with those agents who may not be as educated as you hope. So don't be afraid to ask them questions um, ahead of time before going out and, and really do your homework on it. And, um, if you know the area, make sure they know it just as well if not better than you um because that 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 would be a little challenging for me trying to to uh hire an agent and then you end up knowing more than them so don't be afraid to ask questions up up front because if they're the right fit they're not going to have any problem answering those questions so that would be my biggest advice is um do homework and ask ask the right questions hopefully that helps um we're getting ready to try some new stuff on our podcast uh, for 2018, we have some new things we want to try and do to break it up, um, have a little more fun. I don't know how that's been possible or how that's going to be possible, but if there's a chance for us to be more open, it's probably going to be through this. Yeah, I, I think uh, I don't want people to think that we're just habitat nerds because we are. Uh, we we know that and we accept it, but we also are very much. Uh, I don't know if redneck's the right word, but that's kind of what we are. I'm a blue-collar guy. How about that? And so, uh, anyway, uh, we've, we're going to start doing this thing every week uh, called Would You Rather, and we're going to ask each other questions, um, and basically... All appropriate, of course, related would to Would you rather habitat, hunt, hunting, let's just blah, say, blah, would blah. you rather hunt Iowa or Kansas? Would you rather run a chainsaw or plant food pots? Stuff like that. Um, just to let you guys know that sometimes Matt and I don't always agree um, with these certain mm-hmm. techniques and different things. And so you'll get to hear us, um, and hopefully it'll be more of a personable um, conversation. And, and I'm not going to know ahead of time what Adam may ask me, and he's not going to know what 
my would you rather is going to be for him. But what we want to do is, is kind of open it up on, on social media too. If you guys have an idea, if you guys, you know, hey, I wonder what their thoughts are on this. And it's just a quick little topic. We're not going to spend much time on it, but we're going to open that up on, on social media platforms and say, hey, any ideas for the would you rather rather segment of on this week's podcast and list it out and hopefully we'll be able to address one of the two of us will will pick that and, and address it during the podcast. Yep. So, so you, you ready? Yeah. All right. So Adam, say you've got a new farm. Farmer comes up to you, the tenant farmer, and he's been farming for years. Um, or or he's new. Or he you know he's new to the property. And you say he says to you. Would you rather this year, you're one of your place, would you rather me plant soybeans or corn on the property? What would you, how would you respond to that? I would say soybeans, no doubt, um, for the fact that it's going to provide forage throughout the summer and into the fall and winter with the standing pot or with, with the pots. Um, so basically with corn, I'm going to have little uh, forage throughout the growing season, but then during prime late season, I'll have great forage. But flip side of that is I'm going to have great forage all summer and I'm going to have pretty darn good forage during the late season. So to me, it's a no brainer between the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would you say? I'd agree. Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> so here's my, would you rather to you and I'm changed it up because, um, you know, this is the first time and I kind of threw one at you, but would you rather have, if you could be a landowner, would you rather own 300 acres non-resident in Iowa with the chance of killing a 200 plus every third year when you get a tag. Yep. Or would you rather own 300 acres in Kansas but know that you're probably never going to reach a 200 but you're going to get to hunt it every single year and kill a good deer most likely. I'm going to Kansas. Yeah, okay. I like probability and I get to hunt. That's just more time in the stand and more time out there being able to buy um it's still a lottery system, but it's very good chances of being able to get a tag <laughs> yeah, for, a for um, that property, that 300 acres in Kansas. So for so sure. Would you rather Kansas. be around Leon, Iowa, or the Flint Hills of Kansas? <sighs> in that same situation, that same 300 acres? Yeah. Oh, man. Woo. Uh, I'm going to say Flint I'm, Hills. I'm going to say Flint Hills, too. And people are probably like, are you kidding me? Yeah. But no, I, I, I love to be in the stand. I just want to be hunting. I don't want to sit out on a, on an incredible property. Um, I want to know that, you know, and for me, a mature buck, that's going to get me jacked up no matter what size it is. It, I, I don't care. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to be in the stand hunting. Yep. I think I would have to agree with that. Um, for sure. All right. Let's go ahead and let's, get into hinge Let's get cutting. in this, this hinge cutting debate. I hope everyone is sitting down and ready and uh, got their listening ears on because we're going to talk about hinge cutting and the truths behind hinge cutting and what a deer prefers and what the habitat can can bring about and produce if you do and use different techniques and, and a this combination of techniques. This kind of comes up with, we've been mm, all over here lately consulting. I've been in Iowa and northern Missouri and Matt and I both been in Oklahoma and he was in, in West Virginia, Pennsylvania. And this has all been in the last <laughs> two, two weeks, weeks. <laughs> something like that. So we've been everywhere, and uh, we have kind of this technique that we use a lot and prescribe to a lot of our clients that 
if they have a huge chunk of timber, of course, it's going to be really difficult to do a TSI in one year over that entire area. So we start laying out these, strategically laying out these pockets um, or thickets um, close to some of their hunting areas. Maybe it'd be a food plot or, or a really nice saddle, whatever it is. And these are one to four acre areas, probably even more like one to two acre pockets that we prescribed some hinge cutting and different types of cutting within that one to two acres. And since we've been laying that out, we've been having a lot of conversations with landowners about this. And um, we decided it would be very fitting um, with everybody out doing hinge cutting right now anyway um, to kind of cover some of our techniques and why we do it this way versus ways that you may see a on, lot more popular on YouTube and other places. Yeah, so I think let, let's first talk about, you know, creating these bedding areas in the timber and then we'll get into like the the exact like kind of ratio and types of cuts that we're talking about. But first off, the, the, the one thing that comes to mind, you kind of brought it up there, was was the placement of it. You know, when we're talking about, we're not just going to willy-nilly put these out here and just say, oh, I'm just going to pick a dot on a map and, and just go for it. No, 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 no. There's a very um, right and the wrong way to do this and selection and placement of these high-intensively intens managed um, bedding areas is very important to the the success of hunting it in the years to come yeah for sure we and, and i think a lot of times when we put them off the edge of food plots um depending on the food plot situation but we try to put enough of a gap in there to where if the terrain allows that the hunter or landowner can slip in there in between the food plot and that area and hunt it effectively um there's a lot of, of course different reasons why we where we put them but terrain plays probably one of the biggest factors into where to put these little thickets and and terrain for for two different reasons for the deer's benefit of hey i i you know i want a nice thick area um that's got the right cover that's got the right security i want one on a north slope because it's when it's hot during the summertime i want to be able to be on a north slope and stay cool but still have the right amount of cover and then in the winter time i want something that i'm gonna be able to soak up the sun and be in the cover, so I want something on the south-facing slope. And then we want, for our benefit, to have those situated in areas that the terrain is going to allow us to get in there and hunt and possibly funnel deer even more as they're making their way out to food um, or vice versa from food back to that bedding area. If we can do that, you know, we talked about oftentimes the relationship between land and the animals, and if we understand that and how they're going to utilize that land then we can place these in the right place and get in there and hunt them successfully. Yep. <clears throat> so we talked about size too. We said kind of that one, one to, to three, three acres. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it depends again on, on the size of the property and, and what the surrounding area is going to look like. And if there's any other types of cover that you might have on the property, but that's, that's a general size that one to three, they're very easy to do. You can knock out a couple in a day. Easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not not hard, not complicated. So one to three acres, you can you can roll through on a weekend, call some buddies, get additional chainsaws out there. You can knock out um, a good chunk of, of work in a couple a couple hours, really. So we talked about terrain features. Let's let's just dive in straight to to hinge cutting now, and the aesthetics of hinge cutting um, and what that may look like down the road. And the potential, how that may af affect a timber harvest down the road. Because remember, we 
we want to prescribe and use techniques that that are going to be conservation minded and that makes sense down the road for other folks. We don't want to make a mess for other folks, no. you know, other landowners or, or whatever it may that, be. That makes me cringe um, when I see, when I get to a property and somebody's laid out a ton of hinge cutting and it's overhead high and it's pretty much looks like a tornado went through there. Um, but then in the mix of all of that is some nice oaks that they left. Mm-hmm. And it's like they left those for somebody to harvest them. But why would a timber, a logger, want to come in and have to fight through all the hinge cuts? There's stumps everywhere now. And so basically it it's you're making it to where it's going to be very difficult to get a logger it, it in there. It creates a headache down the road. Yes. What may be a temporary solution long term, if we think about it, lay it out in a different way or, or, or choose to cut it in a different way and still produce cover you know, now we're looking at different options that are going to basically allow you to achieve both the end result of, of creating better timber and, and accessing it, but then the, again, creating good cover. That's the difference between a TSI and a hinge cut area. Um, mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. if I'm looking over the general landscape and I say there's some good oaks in here that are going to make some money one day, I'm not going to destroy it or destroy kind of the timber and, and the... I guess down the road, the ability for a logger to get in there by doing hinge cutting everywhere. I'm going to do a TSI and I'm going to eliminate, maybe it's hack and squirt and I'm just killing the trees while they're standing. Um, but I'm releasing those oaks and allowing them to grow faster. And then I still have the ability to go in there and make money when there's a timber harvest. But if I go in there and cut everything six foot tall, hinge it over and leave nothing but the oak standing, it's going to look terrible, and it's going to be really difficult to get a guy in there to cut those oaks. And and two, what's the point? What is the point to cut that high? Why why are we holding a chainsaw above our head to cut something off a hinge a tree at six foot high when overhead cover? I I don't think a deer needs overhead cover. I just I don't. And and yeah. my 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 proof in the pudding is. Kansas, Kansas. <laughs> Oklahoma, Nebraska, South Dakota. Oh, but then the d- other side of that debate is, well, it, it's different down in Missouri than it is up north. Well, North Dakota. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> but, like, I we don't have, like, uh, what are those, like, flying... Pterodactyls. Pterodact- we don't have pterodactyls. Pterodactyls aren't a threat anymore. anymore. No. We don't, we don't, Overhead we don't assault is not something of, of a deer's concern. Unless it's a bow hunter in a, in a tree stand. But that's it. Like that overhead cover, to me, let, let's think about this for a second. All right, I want to increase the amount of vegetation that's at a deer's level, but I'm going to hinge every single thing in this acre, and I'm still blocking the sunlight from getting down to the ground. We've been to many places and seen just this destruction and i like chaos I, I don't want people to get the wrong opinion that hey you know cutting is is bad no 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 cutting's great but when everything's laid on top of one another and you can kind of walk underneath of it if you will I and there's like a say, canopy you've just moved the canopy down to six foot tall instead of 40 you're yeah. still blocking the sun i don't i don't get it it's it's almost like we like chaos. They've heard it time and time again. But that's we don't like organized chaos because that's pretty much what it is. You've you've taken it and you've gone, okay, just like you said, we've got a we've got canopy 
40 foot tall and now we put it six foot tall. No, we want 40 foot tall and put it a gonzo. We don't want it. That sunlight is supposed to get to the ground, all the way down to the ground instead of making this. Oh, it's like a it's like a flat teepee if you look because it's like everything's crisscrossed and sitting on top of one another and I don't understand the point. I, I don't I, I don't I don't I don't know why that's a thing. I don't know why you know, you know why it's a thing. I don't uh, know why it's a thing. I honestly don't because to me it's it's incredibly dangerous to be cutting like that, having a chainsaw running above your head and 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 not even um getting to the point of that resource is out of the reach for deer yet. I'll, we'll get there, but it's just really dangerous. To and we're do. referring to the hinge cuts from head high and above. Yeah. And uh, so you got to get the pole, whatever that thing is, and and push it up there and, and push the trees over now, or hook them. That that pole, if if you are cutting at your hip and it gets hung up, yeah, that could be good. But I still don't want to be reaching above my head just to get that thing tipped over and get no. going, like. What what does it accomplish though? To me, you know, I've seen these cuts since we're both active on several habitat forums, um, not forums, but social media pages. I see this a lot where some guy goes in and he cuts all these whatever trees six foot tall, and he lays them over, and you're like, oh yeah, and people are like, boy, that looks great. But you can still, you get, he posts a picture and he's at deer level and you can still see through it. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't quite understand. I don't, I don't mean to make, um, like a joke about you it. You made but a miniature forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like you in a park a or whatever. Like, yeah. like, I mean, if I would. Like, it's like a dollhouse. Yeah. But you it, just like shrunk the size. Yeah, exactly. That's all it is. Because now again, even if, even if a deer can walk underneath of it and get from one side to the other. He's still walking cleanly through it underneath of it because you can see through it. The whole point is to get sunlight to the ground, all the way to the ground, and let vegetation from the ground begin to grow and provide when a deer does lay down side cover. And cover and the re-sprouts of the trees that you did hinge are still within reach. That's yes. that's like Another thing when we're and I, we're probably going to get way off the notes. On we this already podcast are because <laughs> it's okay. just like all right. We, we mentioned hinge cutting. This. Let's just debate this out. <laughs> yeah. um, when it comes to the six foot tall hinge cuts, and from what I gather, whenever people suggest that, we're looking for cover and food and food in the form of the ends of the tree that they dropped over. Woody Browse. Woody Brows, but you're also going to get continued sprouts out of the stump. That where you hinge, where, where you made you that cut. initial cut, and that oftentimes is where I see most of the foraging from the deer on on those stump sprouts. Uh, immediately, if you if you were to cut now, and and it laid all the way down to the ground, they'd eat a bunch of the buds on the very yes, top of the tree. On the but, top. We're and talking years to come now. The next year, you're going to have stump sprouts. And if you cut that tree at six foot tall or higher, or even five foot tall and higher, basically above a deer's reach, you cut that tree, and the next year you get stump sprouts. Those stump sprouts are already out of reach of the deer. So, And two to three years down the road, those stump sprouts are going to be continuing to grow way out of the deer's reach to a point where... All you've done is just shrunk the forest down 
from 40 foot to 6 foot, but it still isn't you didn't change anything other than the height. It's still going to be shading out the forest floor and it's still out of reach of the deer. And there's why I don't understand the whole purpose of of making those cuts because let's let's think about it, you know, if we've got a 6-inch hickory tree that that's hinged 6 foot tall, like Adam said, we could get those sprouts come back real quickly, but what's feeding those sprouts is a hickory root system that is several years old. So those those sprouts, because they're not getting browsed and set back by deer, they're out of reach. They're going to grow very quickly. They have a massive root system. They've got a 30-year root size. system growing yeah. a, a basically what looks like a, a one-inch a diameter tree. And it's going to shoot up and get way out of reach and produce a lot of, of growth and cover but way out of reach that we're not going to be able to access. And if you do that across an entire acre on lots and lots of hickories or just throughout hickory um, because it's a common one that gets hinged. But if you do that, again, you're quickly covering back that canopy that was potentially had the opportunity to be open if that tree had just been cut all the way down. So that's why that's why really the 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 goal of producing cover isn't accomplished and and the most preferred way for deer and two the goal to accomplish increasing amount of forage isn't accomplished either because it's out of reach or it's a very very temporary time with the buds at the end of the tree that's in reach and i have other techniques i can use that produce both quality forage for years to come and more cover immediately and down the road. Mm-hmm. So I I hope that has encouraged people to, to, to possibly get away from that technique of cutting one because your wife would probably like to see you home and not squash beneath a tree. Squashed or at home griping about your shoulders yeah. throbbing and your back hurting because you held a chainsaw over your head all day. I, I want to kill deer. Like, don't get me wrong. I really, I want to kill deer, and I love working in the habitat. But there comes a point where it's like, man, does this make sense? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And, and not only I want to kill deer, and I want to enjoy seeing deer, but I also, <laughs> I think of it like this. If I went in there and we hinge cut all of our timber the way that we're seeing this trend of hinge cutting head high, I think... If if I'm blessed to have children, I think my sons would really, if I have even sons, they would not be big fans of mine if they went in there to try and no. harvest timber later on and say, well, Dad said he only cared about, that's the one line I, I cannot stand. And when somebody says, I would re- I don't care about making money, I, I just want to create deer habitat. Now, I'm all for creating great habitat, but I also want to make the farm as profitable as possible. That's yeah, what, I mean, that's what that's why we have it or we have it to enjoy it. But also we need to be wise with how we're using it. And if we if we can make money off of it, that just means that hopefully we can take some of that money, and put it right back into improving the farm. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so seeing all these uh, don't even get me started. We already started on it. But that's the biggest problem I have with hinge cutting is it, we can provide forage. In two ways, by the first cut and then the re-sprouts, and also providing cover and bringing the cut down to knee high rather than overhead high or where, head high. Where your hands naturally hang. <laughs> Don't make it too complicated. Your hands are right there. Just 
turn that chainsaw horizontal, make that flush cut and bend that tree right over because then it's then that hinge is within reach for deer to be able to um, access those those new sprouts that come out the year following. And then those buds are still available because they're all the way down against the ground instead of being kind of hung up among all the clutter at six foot high, four foot high, they can reach them now. It just makes more sense to, to do it. It's easier by far. If, if your claim is you're doing hinge cutting because you want to provide more food, then there is no reason for you not to drop the height of the cut down to knee high for because sure. you're going to provide two meals instead of, I just say that because you have two two ways of providing a food source rather than one. Yeah, yeah. No, Actually, three because if you drop it down lower, there's a better chance that sunlight's going to hit the forest floor and other plants are going to grow. Oh, for sure. So you're going to have overall more food just by dropping the cut down. Let's Let's think about this. You know, you're in the woods. Everyone's walked by it before. An old tree, it uh, it may have died. It may have fallen over. And now there's there's a void in that canopy. There There's a gap in the canopy that sunlight is getting down to. And in and around that log, if you don't have too many deer um, and, and you've got the na- native browse coming back, you see growth in and around crawling on that log. It could be greenbrier, could be raspberry, could be pulkberry, could be ragweed. But everything is growing in and around because now there's sunlight on the ground and that canopy is not just shortened to six foot high or, or 30 foot high, but it's all the way down against the ground. So now you've got the benefit. Let's say if that, if that tree was alive, you had the benefit of the buds, you had the benefit of the re-sprouts, and then you'd still have the benefit of that new native vegetation coming back, growing naturally because the sunlight's getting all the way to the ground. So we so we've talked about hinge cutting six foot high, and that's kind of like one extreme when it comes to creating these bedding areas that that's typically seen. Let's go to to the other side of things now, um, and talk about flush cutting. And yeah, and I think the kind of the intro to that for me is when we're talking about these when we're talking about these little bedding areas, these pockets or these thickets, and we say we're doing hinge cutting, we're not talking about hinge cutting every tree that we want removed out of there. Within those hinge cuttings, ho- hopefully, maybe there are a few trees that we want to leave. There are species that are going to provide some income. Maybe they're a young walnut or a, go- a young oak, um, and they're even a straight oak. We're going to go ahead and probably cut the trees that are twisted up, never going to provide any any income in a, in a log. But then it's just a hinge cut. I kind of th- rule, of th- rule of thumb, a third of them are hinge cut. A third of them are flush cut. And the other third of them are flush cut and treated with a herbicide. And we'll explain why here in a little bit. But So hinge cutting is not an entire thing. Yeah. When, uh, <laughs> when we talk about these bedding areas, creating these bedding areas in the timber, it's not just a, let, let's go back to our favorite, or our honestly not favorite word, but we talk about all the time, monoculture. We're not yeah. going to go in and completely do everything the same. We're not going to go and completely hinge all these trees. There's going to be haha diversity among the cuts and we're going to explain that. So let's let's talk about flush cutting right now. And a lot of times in a commercial um, setting, you would see that in the form of a clear cut. If if it was on a large scale, um, a clear cut's when a logger comes in and cuts everything. They just cut it off. And most times they remove the logs, they may have log piles and they may have uh, treetops that are kind of scattered throughout, but in certain areas and certain species we'll cover here in a little bit, um, the best thing to do is flush cut those species. 
And, and what that's going to do is no matter what, for sure, sunlight's getting to the ground. I mean, immediately, mm -hmm. right then and there, sunlight is getting all the way to the ground as that tree is now laid flat across the ground. And you're like, well, you talked about, you talked about forage. You talked about, you know, you wanted to do both. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we do want to do that. And if, and if it's a species that, that stump sprouts very aggressively, a couple that come to mind are, are dogwoods or, and, and maples. Those stump sprout a lot. And if we flush cut it, then we've got that forage that comes back the next year. So I don't have to hinge to just get two types of forage. I can flush cut too and get a different type of forage. And, and when I flush cut, I've got that growth starting out from the ground level. And I'm going to do about, like Adam said, a third of those trees, a flush cut. And I got another third that's a hinge cut. So I got immediate cover with my hinge cut. And then I flush cut the other third. And you're going to get more immediate cover. More immediate cover with a top laying down the ground. But then that next year, I've got cover coming up from the ground floor, working its way up to basically meet in the middle where that hinge was, if that makes sense. So you've got a hinge that's three foot tall. Now I've got growth coming up and numerous sprouts that deer are foraging on from the ground level. And fire will, when we run a fire through there, it's going to be able to knock those stump sprouts back. It's just resetting all that forage. And when Matt says flush cut, just so you understand, we're meaning flush with the ground. But that's not straight flush, put the saw blade bar right on the ground. But it's <laughs> within six inches of, a, of the ground. It doesn't it's have very to be low, and perfect. you cut all the way through the stump and just let the tree uh, fall over. And it's, it's that simple. Just let it fall over. Let it do its thing. Decompose. But know that the whatever that canopy was occupying in blocking the sun to the ground, gone. It's removed instantly. Now you've got sunlight coming all the way to the ground. And, and you've got forage coming back the next year, or even that year if you're cutting at this time frame. Yeah. And what's the difference, you may ask, what's the difference between a hinge cut and a flush cut as far as the treetop on the ground? A flush cut's going to break down a lot quicker because you've completely removed that from its source of life. Um, so nothing when you hinge it. cut, there's still going to be nutrients transferring, um, if you've done it appropriately, from the roots to the tree that even though it's laying on the ground, it's still getting nutrients through the portion that you didn't cut all the way through. So it takes a lot longer. And a lot of times it's still lit, it's, the tree is still living. So if you flush cut it, that tree is done. The only thing living is still the roots. So then you're going to get the, the suckers, as some people call them, um, the 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 stump sprouts growing back so that's the biggest difference and i think it's really important to kind of get a visual here of what we're talking about we're talking about the cover that's going to come back and why we're going to hinge some versus flush cut some immediate cover adam we've got that that hinge cut because we've got some side cover right that's, yeah that's coming up the, off the ground it's already there it's already present so we're hinging that three four foot level so right there when we make that cut Deer can kind of bed up against or bed against the top, and it's there. It's ready for them. But the next year, and when we compare that to a flush cut, flush cut, all they have is the treetop. They don't mm -hmm. have anything against the, you know, the, the trunk, if There's you will. There's no vertical. Right. But the next year, the next growing season, what you've got is a trunk from the hinge, some sprouts coming out that, so that's decent cover, right? But then I also, right next to it, the tree next to it, I've got – 
a lot of sprouts coming out that's coming from the ground level. So I'm getting this mosaic of, of cover from different angles, different degrees, different heights, all in one area just by selecting or using different cuts on different types of trees. Mm -hmm. So that's going to increase the longevity of that bedding area because even if I go and hinge cut everything, I've got a couple years before those, those, even if I do the right height hinging a couple years before that's out of reach. Yeah. But if I'd gone and flush cut some, I've got more cover years down the road and we use prescribed fire. We use prescribed fire. And so those flush cut trees are going to break down a lot quicker and be filled back in as they break down. We're going to have a lot more growth from early succession plants and other briars, Mm -hmm. brambles growing in their place. Um, And then the other side of that is we also, the other thing we do is carry some herbicide and we treat another third of those trees that we flush cut. We've treated the stump to prevent any stump sprouts. Mm -hmm. Reason for that is because if we were to go in and hinge cut and just flush cut, no herbicide, and we didn't, we missed a couple fires, there's a good chance we turn come back six years from now and it's it's young forest and it's almost out of reach of deer already again. By treating those stump sprouts or those stumps is we're ensuring that we're not getting a bunch of stump sprouts out of that so we can let the early succession and brambles right there around that grow and not have to compete with the stump sprouts. Right. And, and have a much better root system to grow a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... That's the thing. We got to remember what's feeding those. And when we do a flush cut, what's feeding again, those, um, those sprouts is a older root system feeding those very tiny little, um, sprouts are coming up around the entire base of where we cut and deer can forage on that very heavy. And throughout a growing season, they continue just to pop and put new leaves on throughout entire growing season and deer can forage and gain that. And, and the other thing that we we haven't even mentioned is when we when we treat these uh, the other third of the flush cuts that we're doing. When we lay that top over, we've got structure from that top, and all the native vegetation that's going to grow in the area because again we've treated the stump, we are letting light get through, is going to grow in and among that tree top. It's going to use it to climb. Those briars are to climb all over top of it, and you're going to have such an amazing, again, I'm going to say it, mosaic of cover present in that area in such a short amount of time. It's going to, it's going to blow your mind when you completely let the sun and nature do its thing. It's going to fill in and it's going to fill in the species that deer need. They we need have a that story. cover. We have a story at the end of the podcast to pull this all into truth. So yes, stay with us. So um, it's super, super important to just let nature do its thing and another another thing is what I guess clients sometimes ask is how how big should they be? You know, I've got I've got fifty acres, but you only want me to do three acres and how should I go in there a bunch and, and check it, monitor it? Man, you just let deer do its thing. When I know that I'm hinging a third, flush cutting a third, and flush cutting and using herbicide on the species that I know aren't gonna produce that grade of buds or, or maybe it's an undesirable tree. Um, could be a tree of heaven. It could be, um, other species that they're just, they're invasive. We just do not want them. When I go and treat those, I know that that area is going to produce 
the right amount of cover and the appropriate cover at the appropriate height that deer are going to prefer. And I'm just going to let them do their thing. I don't need to know that they're bedding up against a, I don't need to find a buck bed. I don't need to find a, a doe bed or anything in there. I just know that when I do this work years down the road, the deer are going to be using it. Mm-hmm. And I don't care within that one acre or three acre place where he's bedding at specifically, because I'm not going to have a stand in that bedding area. Did I'm going to be hunting them to and from. I did say buck Stop bed. it. Okay. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but I, I don't it. need, I don't need to know. I don't need to know that. I just need I, to know and treat that area as a sanctuary. Yep. When the work's done, I get out. And I the just reason, let it be. The reason when we talk about these being an acre to a third of an acre, think of it as um, basically you couldn't do this over your entire property, and we wouldn't want you to do this over your entire property for the simple fact that it would be a disaster to try and go in and for a, a logging crew to maneuver through all your hinge cuts. Ideally, what we're doing is making these thickets that are borderline completely opening up the canopy um, to where it's just an amazing thicket. And then the rest of the timber has been a TSI to where we've cleared out the species that aren't going to provide any value. And we have a lot of early secession growing, but they're still going to be preferring to bed near these thickets because there's a lot more cover there. For sure, just let them do it, do their thing. Again, they're they're gonna find these areas um, year one. Yeah, year, we, it, we it's have amazing. the proof. It's amazing what comes back in such a short amount of time frame. When we think of you know, when we think about timber harvest, we're we're talking 20, 30, 60, 80 years between some timber harvest. But when we're talking about the work that we're prescribing and and creating these bedding areas in the timber, you know, the hinge in the third, the flush cutting the third flush cutting the third and treating you have cover within year one if you do and if you go out and do the work this weekend you have a bedding area that you can hunt in and around and know and treat a sanctuary this fall that's what i love about hinge cutting and that's why my brother and i've done it for years is because we were a working cattle farm where the cows got in the timber so there was no underbrush so it went from no cover to cover in just a few hours of a chainsaw. Now, Immediate. Im- immediately. But that is also the negative that some people see with hinge cutting is that it's not, ugh, oh, 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 ugh, throw, almost throw a, ugh, aesthetically pleasing. Gross. Yes. That was nasty. Some people still want to think about aesthetics and how it looks to the human eye. It doesn't look like a big, beautiful timber lot in a park setting. Rule that if you are concerned about the habitat and the wildlife, you got to look past that and say, that's not ideal. What you want is a lot of underbrush. You want early successional species growing. How many times, (laughs) I heard this today. How many times do you hear, oh, it's a good hunting track. It's all hardwoods. I got to break it to you. With what we do of consulting and real estate, is we see so many farms in a year and being, frankly, more affordable consultants, we see a lot more farms than, than a lot of other consultants just because more people hire us because of the fact that we can go on 20-acre piece or 2,000-acre piece. So we see land from big, small, timber, brush. Here's the thing, and I, and I hate to say it because you're about to go there and, and, and I'll go. You're I, beating I, me to the I punch. I may beat you to it, <laughs> is the people say, 
It's a big, beautiful, oh, it's just got big, beautiful timber. And you get there and it's big, yeah, sure, it's big, beautiful timber to you. But it's horrible for the wildlife. I guarantee you're not seeing any quail in there. I guarantee you no turkey's going to put her poults in there. And a deer's just going to get through there and get to the nearest cover. So yeah. it might, you might be able to take a rifle shot that's 150 yards, but I, I don't care. I want I want that that acreage to be more beneficial. You know, I talked about it the other day um, on a property, and we've shared the numbers before about, you know, how productive mature timber is versus um, young forest and so on and so forth. But it's let's get the most out of the property and let's get it in a state where it's going to hold more deer. I don't I don't have to see. I want to see deer hunting. Don't get me wrong. But I also want to know that I've got, I've got the deer in a neighborhood in, in my property, the way it's set up, the way I've got it managed. I don't care what Joe Blow's doing next door because he's not doing half the work that I'm doing. And I don't need to see 30 deer to know I have deer. 50 deer on my property right now. Like I don't, yeah. I don't, I know it. They're in there and I'm going to hunt them and I'm going to kill them because I've got my property set up and managed right. But I don't need to see it on a daily basis. Those, deer coming out to a fescue pasture walking through an open woodlot i, I if, don't need if, that if your if your property is one of those where when you take a drive around you see a majority of deer you have a problem with your habitat your deer Probably. should not be most likely i think of all the properties we go on and and especially with real estate because we see some nasty stuff in that side of the world um as far as oh yeah a logging operation went on and oh there's just not many trees left it's not very pretty and that's like the tree the the trigger word to me is not very pretty our ears and I'm perk like, up really what is it oh it's just brushy oh you have you have my interest <laughs> yeah and we go and look at it and it's Are like you there's saying... deer sign everywhere yeah because it's nasty it's thick how, how cheap is this land I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so for that's sure. what I, I think for some reason we've lost our way with the whole aesthetics. And, and there's people that are wildlife minded people who focus more on aesthetics than they do wildlife habitat. And I understand that. I like I want a I want a, a good looking property, but I also at the end of the day, at the end of a hunting season, I want to kill deer. It's all I, about I, perspective. I wanna kill and and give my property the best chance it has in holding good deer, giving them what they need in the form of cover in the form of food. And well, I'll tell you, well, if you, you have a hundred foot Oak trees that are big, beautiful, ready for a timber harvest and there isn't anything growing underneath. And then all your open areas are food plots. Sure. You have some pretty, you have a pretty farm, but you're not holding all the deer you can hold. no, no, th there's there's other things that you can do for sure to increase the number of deer on a property and supplement maybe what those food plots, maybe they're getting hammered, maybe they're getting destroyed. You can't even um, hmm. have a have a crop. And Cla maybe, classic. Maybe, that's, maybe classic. that's because the native forage isn't even present. Maybe because they don't have what they actually need. Oh. And they have that food resource, and they're going to be crushed. We've gotten way off topic, man. <laughs> I knew this one was going to be a bunch of we rambling. We have gotten way off topic. I was just topic. thinking, <laughs> uh, how many farms have you seen where the food plots are getting crushed, and uh, they can't 
put in another f- acre of food plot or trying to do that, but then you look at the hardwoods and there's nothing growing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, huh, yeah, that's because you haven't managed your timber. But, and, and the white oaks, I, I, I like white oak trees, and I, I want to make um, profit off timber, but I also know that a great acorn crop comes every three years or so. And that's not that much to bank on when deer eat every single day. So I want to be providing, and I want the acres on my property providing food every day of the year. So they figured it out. Adam wants a brushy farm. Yep. I'm going to be a weed farmer. That's okay. That's fine by me. Let's, get, have back, a, let's get back to hinge So what cutting. kind of species are we talking? Whenever what? we're talking about hinge cutting, there are certain things you want to kind of know um, when it comes to hinge cutting. Some species we don't hinge cut. Some species you can't, and you can get really frustrated and say, "I want to hinge cut. I just want to hinge cut because I see it on social media all the time." But you so just you get can't, frustrated. You can't hinge cut a pine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thing splinters and goes everywhere, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <clears throat> but some things aren't meant to be hinged. It's best to flush cut them. So that's where or hack and squirt. Or that's hack- another option. That's where knowing your tree species before before that chainsaw dives into that bark, you gotta know what tree it is you're cutting. You gotta know what is gonna come back when I make that cut. And we're is gonna it share, gonna be that beneficial? Or, we're gonna sh- or not. We're gonna share a great article from QDMA on our show notes. Mm-hmm. You need to check out. I think it's like five things, five signs you're hinge cutting too much or something like that. And one of them is not knowing what species. You're hinge cutting. And and it's it's super important to, again, be familiar with this. And I, I think a lot of times, um, as, we're, as we're touring properties and such, most people forget about how diverse that timber block honestly is. And there's so many different species represented within a woodlot. Um, and knowing each one and what they're capable of when you do cut them is super important to the longevity of the bedding area that you're trying to create. You you got to know that. Um, so thing trees that that we like to hinge. Maples, mm-hmm. dogwoods, I, and I like hickories. And I, I'm going to throw this too. I like to flush cut those ones too. That's uh, exactly. But that's the thing. That's Walnuts. why we. That's why. <laughs> That was a totally joke. kidding. <laughs> to- totally kidding. But that that's the thing. That's why it's important to have the diversity and say, hey, those species can provide a great hinge. They can last longer than some other species that, that you might be able to get to hinge. They they can feed their their feeders, their their sprouts and can produce more more forage down the road um, and still feed that canopy that's laid over, whereas other trees like a, a hackberry, they don't do that well. Um so I want to be able to recognize that, utilize that as I'm cutting, and say, these trees, I can hinge, but I'm also going to know I can flush cut them too, and I'm going to have a great response and from I, that root system. Let's just let's just use a maple, for example. Ooh, okay. Maples in, in some parts of the world can really take over the forest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in one of those areas, I'm going to do a lot more herbicide treatment than i am anything that's a great point but if i'm in you know where we're at we that, don't have a lot of maples and so and specifically red maples and, mm-hmm. and uh, sugar maples we don't have many and so 
we have certain pockets where they grow eastern slopes northern slopes we have quite a few that's where i'm gonna i want to try and do a little bit of both i'm gonna hinge cut a little bit and i'm gonna just flush cut them and let them stump sprout like crazy but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna select to terminate them no but we've been to other places i think of um, parts of Kentucky, I think of parts of Ohio, I think Northern of Missouri, just this past weekend for me. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of maples there. So you've got to also look at the composition of what's in that forest. Again, recognizing the, the composition of the species present in the areas that you're selecting to do these cuttings. It's what, important to know that. Here's another species that we have a lot of, hickories. And dogwoods. We have a lot of hickories. And so we hinge cut a few, but for the most part... We cut and treat a lot of hickories because that's what years and years ago when they were doing so much logging around here, they were cutting the oaks and leaving the hickories. And so we just have a hickory-dominated forest. And where it used to be more oak-heavy, now it's the hickory-to-oak forest instead of the oak-hickory forest. Um, Which and, And honestly, there's another place that we see that a bunch, Iowa. Yeah. Oh my uh, gosh. How many how many barks? Yep. Oh. How many how many hickories are in that forest versus the the bur oaks, the big post oaks that typically should be there. They've <laughs> been cut and gone. Cut and gone, but locust trees too. Oh. Don't get me started on those. Those are everywhere up there. I, would, I don't know how they have such big deer. The habitat sucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People are like, "Wait, what?" Did you say, "What?" I said it. It's cedar <laughs> trees and crops. Lay yep. off me. <laughs> <laughs> hickories <laughs> uh but you hey. brought you brought up a good point to to look around and say you know before i really start putting herbicide out there before i start um, making these cuts let me take inventory of what's around me what's the surrounding because i went to delaware um we've made mention of the property before laddie's property in delaware um and he was he was like wait you guys you cut dogwoods? I was like, man, I cut the tar out of some dog dogwoods. He goes, I hardly have any. Look at this one I have here. I was like, yep, that's a dogwood. And uh, he goes, I can't believe. It. I said, Laddie, we've got these things all over the place, and um, they make for a great tree to hinge and a great tree to flush cut. I don't mind it at all. And if they there's too many in an terrible area, terrible tree to try and get an arrow it. through. <laughs> yeah, that's what. That's because when I realized we had a problem. Tree. They're mid story They're mid-story. Oh, they my They don't get goodness. taller. So when you're sitting in the stand early season, you're trying to look down through these canopy tops of dogwoods. Like, man, I just want to cut that thing. I should have well, cut it. Should've. I should have cut it. Should have cut it and let the deer eat it. Yep. And it again, like it produces a great amount of forage throughout the next growing season and seasons to come. All right. Time of the year. Whoa. Now, time of the year. Why are you listening to this podcast? You should be running a chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Time of the year for me, I love, absolutely love running a chainsaw right now. As soon as season ends, January 15th, and actually starting even on the weekend, middle of the day in December, I like to start cutting trees. And uh, for a lot of reasons, I like the immediate benefit of cover, but the immediate benefit of food. Buds. The buds, the deer just, and I've said it before, but... First time I ever noticed this was cutting in the snow in January. Started cutting some trees. First day, cut, cut, cut. Came back the next day and deer tracks everywhere. I'm like, these tracks here? Yesterday? No. Oh, okay. Cut some more. Come back the third day. Tracks everywhere. Deer were starting to associate the chainsaw with a food source. And so you can do that even during hunting season. But also if you're going, man, this is for me. 
and I think I saw it on Habitat page here recently, but guy was like, what can I do to provide food? Should I just go start dumping corn out? And it's like, no, you can go start cutting some trees down. And, and know that, again, that's immediate. That's great right now, but down the road too, you're you're increasing and improving the habitat and cover that the deer are gonna prefer and actively use. Yep. So that's a that's a great this is a great time frame. Between now and in our area, the kind of cutoff window, if we certainly want to use herbicide effectively, that, that March, March time frame. And um, the reason for that is because once trees start pushing nutrients basically their storage from their roots and they're going to push it back up into the tree to start forming buds to leaves and growing this spring they're just going to push with their nutrients they're just going to push the herbicide out of the cut if or out of the stump or whatever it is cycling and and pulling that herbicide back into the roots where most times that's the that's how the herbicide is most effective by getting back to the root that's how it kills the tree that's why putting herbicide in a tree in august september october is an awesome time because it's just gonna suck that herbicide right in and take it to the root right to the source and kill the tree that time of the year taking everything to store up for the dormant season taking it to the root system so that's another option and some some trees start transferring nutrients earlier than others Mm -hmm. walnuts and elms yep i've noticed in february sometimes late february you'll cut the stump and throw some toward on RTU and you'll see that blue stuff just start running down the side of it. And you're like, Oh, it's already transferring mm. nutrients. I can't do anything about it. Right. Right. So, but there's a time frame when we turn back over and, and then the leaves, the bud, basically the buds have sprouted and the leaves are photosynthesizing and bringing nutrients. They're starting that full cycle. So the roots are bringing up stuff and feeding the tree and the leaves are feeding the roots. And that's when you can use the herbicide back again, because you can, Put it in there, and it takes it to the root system. Could be mid to late May, and, and that's where it's, it is yeah, here. It's kind of fluid in in your region. Yeah. Um, if you're, Down if you're south, in, it's probably going to be pushing nutrients in February. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to be done, and it's going to be pulling in in May. But up in nor- the north, it may be April before it starts really greening up, and it may be June before you can get back to cutting it. So. Cutting these trees, hinging these trees, putting herbicide, flush cutting, all this stuff now, and then you're going to stop during green up, and then you, you can pick it back up again during uh, late After spring, out. early yep. summer. Yep. Now, the time I don't want to do this is right before deer season, just because I don't want to be, although it's benefiting the habitat, I don't want to be doing all this activity and changing up travel patterns right before season starts. So ideally, you're doing all your TSI and all your um, thicket creation in the winter before green up. Yep. That's why so. this this time frame, the one that's why we're talking about now, that's why you're seeing it all on social media because it's a great time to be out there and doing it and getting a lot of work done. Plus it's cold and you don't mm-hmm. be, you're not fighting ticks and snakes. I know you love snakes I and do. I um, love all that stuff. They're so great. it's a great time of the year to bundle up and go drop some trees. Yeah. I know we're running out of time. Is there anything else we haven't covered? I want to talk about the story, why we use this. And this is not just the one instance, oh, well, it worked one time, it'll work again. No, this is definitely what we've talked about is all science-based. It's what deer prefer. It's what the species prefer. It's what comes back, sunlight, everything. We know it works. But we had an instance where one year, I'll let Adam tell a story, but we saw this come to fruition. 
We saw our hard work get put in. We saw what returned in a growing season, a matter of a few months. And then we saw a hunt unfold. It was just fantastic. Yeah. So lay the story out for So him. basically, uh, and I'll lay this out as far as when you look at your property and you see ankle high food plot or pasture, whatever it is, and then you look at the timber and it's 100 foot tall trees or whatever it is, and there's not really much in between. You don't have a lot of four foot growth. You don't have a lot of three foot growth. You don't have a lot of stuff growing at a deer's level. Um, there there comes a time where you, you need to fix that. You need to have more of that mid-story kind of almost stair-step type habitat to where you have taller stuff, mid-story stuff, and then shorter stuff. Um, creatures at the edge. You hear that all the time. And so my farm used to always be 100-foot tall trees, pasture. And so we started planting food plots, and, and we had some more observations, but we didn't notice a, a huge change in really directing deer and steering deer until we started doing a lot of these cuts and these little TSI thickets, uh, hinge cutting areas. And, and immediately, I mean, it was almost overnight drop of a hat, we started seeing deer attracted to these areas. So we located a spot on the farm that was kind of right along the boundary, but our boundary on the neighbor had just been completely logged um, in this area. It was real thick. It was preferred bedding. And our farm didn't have a lot of great bedding, but it had all the white oaks and it had a big food plot. It was a great transition area. It was a beautiful Terrain, transition everything. area. It was it was a good transition area. So we decided to make it a great transition area. Instead of going from really, really thick briars on the neighbor from the logging operation and then go straight into open hardwoods, we wanted to mix that up. So we did a thicket creation we walked in there, tons of cedars, tons of hickories, tons of dogwoods, tons of elms, tons of stuff, uh, a tons lot of, of junk, tons of junk, a lot of oaks. But yeah, still staggered. So we oaks said, okay, that. we're going to pretty much cut everything but the oaks, and we're even going to cut the oaks that aren't ever going to provide us any income. Mm-hmm. So we went in and we cut all the cedars, we cut a lot of hickories, but not all of them. Um, we hinge cut some hickories. We treated some with herbicide. We hinge cut some dogwoods and we hinge cut some elms and uh, flush we cut flush cut some. We just yep. had tons of diversity in there. And the first fall that that happened, so we did that in February, and we went back in there. I think it was the first time we'd been in there in October. We we didn't <laughs> against our our uh, wishes. We stayed out of there. We wanted to see what was happening, but we knew what was happening. We knew what was gonna happen. Yep. But we stayed out of there and just let nature run its course and let the deer just become accustomed to it. So the deer showed up on camera in the food plot about 150 yards away. Um, and we're like, you know, if he's in the area, he's probably going to be around that thicket. So we got the right wind. We moved in there. And 30 or 45 minutes, as soon as we got in the stand, Matt spots a buck. It's the buck we're after. And he is in the thicket. And we watched him for about 25 minutes move only about 40 yards browsing and is about as comfortable as you'll ever see a deer stretching during daylight hours in the timber he had zero care in the world no he He, was totally safe in his mind oh yeah and and because he had the right cover he was foraging he had just he had just pretty much stood up and and gotten out of there um, from his bed and walked and he was just meandering so slowly through there um, 
and browsing on everything. Every mm-hmm. step he took, he was biting to the left, biting high, biting low, biting to the right. Um, he had beggar's lice. He had uh, there's some honeysuckle in there. There's green briar. There was browse from the dogwoods, browse from the hickories, and maples. And he was just easing his way through there. Yeah. And I ended up shooting him at 40 yards, and he ran 10 yards and put his nose into a cedar. Um, passed. Yeah. Yeah. So it was done. It was a very good example of of what hard work can do and the amount of change. Uh, basically, what we did was we took a a blank area that was already a great travel corridor or a good travel corridor because of the terrain and the draws and the, basically the, the topography of that area and then we made it even better by making it a preferred food source so as they made their way to a larger food feeding plot. food plot yeah but and that's exactly kind of the design of what we what we're doing on a lot of this so hopefully today was insightful hopefully there was some knowledge dropped if you will but my hope is that honestly things just made sense things just seemed to click as to why yes a chainsaw is so beneficial yes hinging can be beneficial but that's not the only solution hinge cutting in a nutshell can provide food and cover but it can provide food in several different ways by the end of the tree from the immediate cutting you can have buds for food you can have stump sprouts the next year within a deer's reach, and then also you're going to let the sunlight reach a forest floor so you get that growth. But if you cut high, you're only going to get the food source from the ends of the tree, the immediate food source after cutting. You're not going to get the stump sprouts, and those stump sprouts are going to start shading out the forest floor a lot quicker than if it was lower. And plus, they're not providing any food with the stump sprouts. So a huge Huge comparison, huge difference between the two, and uh, and like Matt said, we don't need the vertical cover because, frankly, there are no more pterodactyls. So um, I, I just uh, keep that in mind, hopefully, whenever you're looking at the comparison. You want to have cover from four foot, four foot and down, not from six foot to ten foot. Since six foot to infinity and beyond you don't want a miniature forest forest. yeah no we don't we don't need to to pull that down to small scale level what we need is cover on the ground because that's where deer when they bed down they're on the ground correct they're on they're on the ground so i want the cover on the ground growing from the ground up and accessible for them to use as cover and forage and we don't want to create that we don't want to take a, an entire acre, acre and hinge cut every tree um, in that acre. We want to mix it up, mm-hmm. add some diversity so we can have some chaos. And plus we can allow more early succession to grow, not just trees. Bingo. So that's a huge plus. Anyway, uh, that just wraps it up. That's hinge cutting in a nutshell. This, we, this we, could be a two-hour podcast. We buzz through it. So I know we'll come back. We'll address it some more. Maybe there's going to be some questions that come from it, um, from, from this podcast, and we'll hit them next week. But we, um, I got one more thing, oh. and it's a new thing. I'm going to do okay. this every week. I'm going to challenge our listeners oh, every gosh. week to something. This week, I'm challenging you to start thinking more for the benefit of all wildlife, not just one species. Think big picture land conservation. Don't think aesthetics. Think what benefits the wildlife. That's my challenge to you. Challenge accepted. There you go. (laughs) 
So that was stupid. <laughs> yeah, they're like lame. Turning no, this off to you. Oh, <laughs> saying challenge accepted. <laughs> no, I I want to do that every week. I'm just trying to add some new stuff. We're doing the new uh, Would You Rather. We're also going to have a challenge for them. So challenge. Get it. I just want people overall this podcast. I just want more people to think big picture conservation, I, not just the immediate benefit of killing a big buck. I I agree 100. percent We need we need to think long term longevity. We need to make the work that we do last, and we need to make it the and have the biggest impact that it can for your property for all the wildlife that occupy it. Yeah. So let's let's choose the practices and let's let's get smart on what we're doing and how we're using our time out there. Um, when you whenever you think for me when I think long term and and kind of I could plant a food plot and I could have the best looking food plot in the country. And when I pass 2 years later, it's gone. My my hard work is over. It's just it's going to grow up in weeds and it's going to be erased and you wouldn't even be able to know. That's old field management, man. And then it's old field (laughs) management, but I didn't want it like that. Yeah. But if I do timber work or I plant trees or I plant native grasses, those are things that are going to last long after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's the kind of work that I like and I enjoy. So, yeah. Now, that's a whole, I was, I was getting ready to open another can. I'm not going to go there. All right. So we'll, we'll just end it there. But, I hope that was very, very beneficial for everyone listening. And they'll share it with people who are out there running Chainsaw this month, next month, and the uh, the years to come. And please, we want more interaction. Um, send us more questions. Send us more comments. Please leave us a review wherever you're listening, iTunes, Stitcher, Google, whatever it is, Sportsman's Nation, this is the Land and Legacy Podcast. We will see you guys next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God? Yeah.